Good morning, everyone. And uh, for our scripture this morning, we have uh, two, one from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy and one from the epistle by James. So let's take a moment to read them together. So first, our Deuteronomy. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. And from James, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This ends a reading from God's holy word. May God add a blessing to our understanding of it. So as Paul mentioned, this is um, our Sunday where we celebrate uh, the work that is done um, on the Red Shirt Table, um, town of Red Shirt Table on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And uh, reservations are hard places. They're hard places to go to. They are very hard places to live in. The United States government, as we all know, in the past created this situation, and we're not responsible to fix that. But the fact that today's government is still allowing treaties to be broken, promises unfilled, and people to live in horrifying conditions is unbearable to see. And we do have some responsibility to see what we can do to help fix that. Now, as our scripture lets us know, humanity will always allow the poor to exist. Our words from Deuteronomy, written around 1400 BC, reflects the words that Jesus said again more than 2,000 years ago, the poor you will always have with you. Meaning that humanity has a weakness. Humanity has a weakness in the love of power which will always leave people behind. As Christians, we are called to ease those lives of those people who are left behind while they work to figure out their own solutions. And yes, we can try to influence the next generation with our love and our compassion and with our hopefulness. And that's what we are called to do. And look, I know I have had lots and lots of conversations uh, with people about their feelings about the reservation system. Some believe that assimilation is the only way to go. Some believe that education is the way out. Some believe that continuing to allow the American government to default on promises that they made over the past 200 years is an acceptable and okay policy. But whatever you believe, we always need to understand that our beliefs are coming from our positions in the comfortable world that we live in. And the only way to truly begin to understand what reservation life is like is to go and experience it. Or, like you are all here, to listen to those who have experienced it. 
Because just as there is a wide variety of living circumstances here in Fairfield and in Bridgeport, there is a wide variety of living experiences there on the reservation. Some people have the blessing of having parents and grandparents who overcame the boarding school experience, understanding the importance of education and of being sober, and have raised smart, intelligent children for a couple of generations. And these people are employed and thriving and doing good work on and off the reservation. And this isn't very dissimilar to the people who live in our area who are raised in poverty with gun violence and drugs all around them and who somehow find a way to rise up above all of that. But there are some for whom the atrocities of the boarding school assimilation experiment were just too great and they weren't able to recover. And so their children were broken, and they exhibit that same brokenness that they were raised with. And their children suffer. And when natives were forced to assimilate on the reservations, it meant that their culture, their way of being, their history, their family traditions, their stories, their identities were stripped away. We have forced that upon our Native Americans, and it has failed. And that's different than what we do here and again in our area. We don't force the immigrants that we welcome to assimilate to become the same as us. We encourage cultural parades and food events. We offer support in places like the Burroughs Community Center and Mercy Learning Center both of whom celebrate the diversity of their clientele and do all that they can to enrich their traditions. The children of these parents are encouraged to learn Irish step dancing and ride on floats and parades and create art that celebrates their heritage. But that same support system, that same respect for Native culture is not wi widely present in our society and certainly not in the communities that surround the reservations. But the shining light of the res are those families that have suffered, but whose current generation is trying to revive and maintain the traditions, the stories, and the way of life of the Native Americans so that they have a strong cultural understanding of who they are while taking advantage of the few programs that come to the res like our summer camp. These families are doing all they can to break the cycle of drug abuse and alcohol abuse. And I would say that it's true for 80% of the people that we work with on Red Shirt Table that this is a daily struggle for them. And those grandparents, those who were part of the boarding school program, their children, for the most part, are non-existent. They've either died from drugs or alcohol or they've left, leaving these grandparents to pick up the pieces of their lives and their grandchildren's lives and to do the best that they can with the trauma that they have suffered. They are raising generations of kids who are doing their best to live in the culture of the reservation and their heritage and live in a culture that demands more assimilation. 
So at this time, I am going to invite uh, Matilda Nichols and Alex Joliet, one after the other, to come forward, and they are going to share with you a little bit of their experiences on the reservation. Hi, everyone. My name's Matilda Nichols. I'm an incoming college freshman and one of the previous youth group presidents. For anyone who's new here or wasn't paying attention, Southport Congregational Church runs a summer camp at Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota to promote staying in school and the importance of education to all the children. But instead of me vaguely brushing over the details about this camp this year, just let me walk you through our daily itinerary. A typical day in South Dakota. Bright and early at 7 a.m., we wake up to Laura's ongoing playlist of songs like Good Morning Beautiful and Somewhere Over the Rainbow. <laughs> Next, we get changed and put our backpack together and then head out to our garage or what we call our makeshift dining room to eat breakfast. After eating breakfast, we make our lunch sandwiches and help load up the van with all the supplies for summer camp. By 8.15, we are out the door heading to the reservation, listening to country music on full blast. Around 9 a.m., we arrive at the powwow grounds, the location where we hold camp, and most of us help set up the day for camp, and the others hop in the bed of the truck and go with Paul DePrado and Sydney King to pick up the kids. Picking up the kids from their house is usually the highlight of the week for most of us, by the end of the week, the kids are waiting on the street for us to pick them up 15 minutes early. At 9.30, we give the kids breakfast, giving them time to fully wake up and prepare for the high-intensity camp day. At 10 a.m., camp truly starts. This year, our theme was creative construction, so for the majority of camp, the kids were all suited up with their personalized tool belts. They were ready to build birdhouses, toolboxes, or even parts of two racing cub cars. Throughout the week, the kids learned about different tools and how to respect them. Camp didn't just consist of building, though. It also had art, where Lisa and Sydney taught the kids how the strongest shape was a triangle. The kids got to understand that by doing body art or having bridge-building competitions with toothpicks and marshmallows. It's safe to say not all the marshmallows were eaten during the process, though. <laughs> Finally, our last station the kids could go to was math. This whole camp is about promoting school and pro proving to them how fun and beneficial it is, and you could truly see a lot of the kids' growth and understanding in the math station. The kids did addition and subtraction worksheets, played multiplication war, and also crushed every single Southport kid in memory match. We love to hear the kids say that they were excited to come to Sorry. <laughs> we love to hear the kids say that they were excited for their math class the next year in school, or they were coming back the next day to do more math worksheets. 12 o'clock consisted of lunch, but by the end of the day, end of the week, it was hard to get them to leave their station. Most of the kids rather finish building the cub cars than eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. At 12.30, it was the kids' free time. Ava Pezzamenti helped run group games. These games ranged from kickball to duck-duck goots with buckets of water. Sometimes the kids would rather paint or play cards or have you run around in circles while you're giving them a piggyback ride. 
2 p.m. rolls around a lot faster than we would like it to, meaning farewells for the day. We pack up the camp and either walk the kids back home or drive them back in the truck. They always seem to make sure they're telling us, they always tell us that they're coming back the next day, even our camper Drake, who thought we were coming back for another week. When camp was over, at 3 p.m., the SCC group is on to miscellaneous activities, like the famous wiffle ball backyard tournament, potato feed with the town of Hermosa, drives through Custer State Park, or a visit to Red Cloud School, which calls for a necessary stop to Subway for dinner. Our days are meaningful and packed to the brim. Laura doesn't want us to waste a single moment because the impact we have on, this ki on these kids and the memories we create together will last a lifetime. Every year, the mission trip group brings a different kind of energy to South Dakota. And each year, Laura says it gets better and better. I strongly urge anyone who hasn't gone on the mission trip to go, as it truly will be the highlight of your year. Thank you. Hi, my name is Alex Joliet. I've been coming to Southport Congregation my whole life, and I'm currently a junior in college. I'm studying engineering, and if there's anything an engineer likes doing, it's public speaking. So here we go. <laughs> both, my, both my parents are behind me, so if I go too fast, I'm going to get scolded. My mom's already mad at me. I woke her up early. Proofread this. <laughs> so two weeks ago, I left for South Dakota on what would be my fourth mission trip. Two of the mission trips during my high school years were canceled due to COVID, so I continued going to the reservation this year and last as an adult, or more so a college intern. This left me with a unique role in the trip, and especially when it came to camp. For some background, the children attending camp are usually split into age groups. Our high school counselors are assigned into groups to move along with them throughout the day. Being in the adultish role that I was, I was more there, more or less there to observe and help out wherever needed. Last year, that entailed assisting with a few classes, setting up camp, helping Laura, whatever. This year, I planned on doing the same it had worked so well before. But thanks to the great group we had, I didn't need to fill in anywhere. So I found myself sitting with a 17-year-old kid named Isaiah. Isaiah had been showing up to camp since the start. He had grown into a very quiet teenager who stuck around the fringes of camp, scrolling through his phone with his hood up and his head down. For the first day, it seemed odd to me that he would come to camp at all if he didn't interact with anyone, other than the one-word answers he would give to our high schoolers. Then the week went on, and I started to understand him. Isaiah's story is nothing short of tragic. As my dad put it, Isaiah has seen all the horrors humanity has to offer. He had been born on the reservation with a few other siblings, and his house, which is in extremely poor condition, he constantly faced domestic abuse. Isaiah's situation was so bad, the South Dakota police intervened and arrested his parents in front of him and his siblings when they crossed into American land. After moving around in the foster system, he was then returned to the reservation to live with his grandpa and two brothers, Wakia and Zuya. Now older, Isaiah began moving down some darker paths. Gangs, crime, and violence began intertwined with his life told me stories about these things with no emotion or any indication that this was uncommon anywhere else outside of his world. As I listened, I couldn't possibly judge him. When growing up around so much darkness and having so much trauma thrown on him, 
when he was supposed to be having a childhood, that all seemed normal. Through his stories, I could hear that there had been nothing, or no one, truly close to him, to follow on the straight and narrow path. So how could he be expected to stay clean under these circumstances? On those first few days especially, I knew he had no expectation for himself to stay out of trouble. With his family situation and his recent stint in juvie, prison seemed like a fine place to be in his own eyes. I was trying to reach him about the necessity of staying out of school, in school and out of trouble. He said, I said he would turn 18 school, 18 soon, excuse me, and that prison would ruin his life. His response to that was, my uncle did 20, I bet I could do too. Explaining how prison would ruin his life felt strange to say the least, but again, it seemed normal to him, so why not? From the third day of camp on was when I started to see a different side of him. The side a normal 17-year-old should show. His phone came down, he held eye contact, he even dropped his hood. It had been hovering at 90 degrees for two days, and I still hadn't seen his haircut. My dad, mom, and I all sat and ate lunch with him, talking to him the whole time. He'd come to trust all of us. We had all heard his life story from him and still showed him kindness. Through that trust, he started to listen. He heard our faith in him and started believing in himself a tiny bit. Finishing his summer school, getting through sophomore year, and eventually going to a tech school so he can work in construction, somehow all became, someday all became something that he could start showing interest in working towards. From that, he got a reason to stay out of trouble. On the last day of camp, I was pestering him. The next time I see you, I want you to be a junior. He shrugged it off to me a few times, and I didn't think he was certain of himself. Sticking through high school is a huge deal on the reservation. However, I heard from my mom that his parting words to her were, hopefully the next time you see me, I'll be a junior. Back with our youth group that evening, Laura, Laura talked in our nightly reflection about something called the ripple effect. If we drop a small pebble into the pond, the immediate splash won't be huge. However, the ripples will continue until the whole surface of the pond is changed. Small actions such as showing up and being kind will create a ripple for the kids. For Isaiah, the camp was a safe place where no one was there to hurt him, but only to give him love and support. That love and support gave him a bit of renewed faith in himself. His last words to my mom makes me so happy to hear because it means he's giving himself a shot to succeed and a chance to finally find the happiness he deserves. As Alex and Matilda have implied, Jesus calls us to turn our lives outward to serve others and to care for others, to love others. And that's the attitude that we embody from the moment we step foot on the res to the last minute when we leave. But we're not just there for the kids. This year we had a really fun experience. Through a private donation, we had the opportunity to build a community center. This uh, community center is uh, a double-wide trailer that was given to the given to Red Shirt, but it was on a whole different part of the reservation. Uh, the, the little community of Red Shirt had no way to get it to uh, where they needed it to be, so we found a company uh, that moved it to Red Shirt and that is now working today to secure it into the ground, to remodel it, and this is a huge deal for this community. It's not a big community. It's, if it numbers 100 on any given day, that would be amazing. But what it is is a small group of, of people 
who are working to stay sober. It's a dry town on the reservation. They are working to teach their children traditional ways. And they have a school there, but the school is a federally run school, which means it's behind a barbed wire fence and it's locked after school hours. So there's really no place for this community to have weddings or funerals, to have birthday celebrations, to have just community meetings, to have a place where there's an internet, a computer, a landline phone that they could use to um, make calls in order to try and find jobs. Um, so this is the gift that we are giving to the community um, besides the camps, which is really just a phenomenal thing to be able to do. Um, but back to camp, because camp, that's, it's just in our hearts. Um, when our kids, our Southport kids, arrived to summer camp, they are enthusiastic, they are loving, they are driven, and they are fun-loving, and therefore, those same emotions become real to the kids of Red Shirt. And I want you to take just a moment to look at your bulletin where you have a whole series of photos. And I want to just walk you through a couple quickly. Um, on the front page, besides the things that Matilda um, pointed out, we also do a lot of um, cultural uh, trips. So uh, the group picture here is at the Crazy Horse um, Monument, which is obviously a really important um, uh, event that's happening and going on. And actually, the, um, the artist who created it uh, lived in West Hartford, Connecticut, um, and was brought out to South Dakota. It's a really good story. You should um, look it up. Uh, on the, um, a couple people I want you to, to see. So on the second row of the front page, on the far right-hand side is a little girl named Mika. On the second row, first picture, along with Floor, who's here, is a little girl named Lariah. In the middle picture with Asha is a little girl named Tisha. And uh, on the bottom row, with the pink shirt, um, on the third picture over is a little girl named Matea. She is the twin of Mika. You'll hear about them in a minute. And then if you flip to the back, on the first row, second picture in, in the black hoodie, is our friend Isaiah. And then um, on the second row, in the middle, in the burgundy, is a picture of Wakia. Okay? On the bottom of that page also is a picture of Chris Palmer with four little kids. Don't read the caption, it's full of um, bad grammar and wrong information. I, I was very tired at this point putting this together, but just listen to me. So Isaiah is on the left, that same little boy. His brother, Wakia, is in the red. So the hoodie, first one, the maroon, the second one. Their little sister, Wazia, their little sister, Shaylin, and then there are three little kids missing. Their little brother, Baby Wayne, as we knew him at that time, and then uh, infant twins. Their family was separated. Their, their parents were um, meth addicts, part of the meth train from Mexico to, um, to uh, Canada. And that is the last picture that we have of them together as a family, um, minus the little kids. That was our second um, summer camp. So we knew Isaiah back in 2009. 
Um, and didn't see him again and didn't know anything about him until he showed up at camp last year. And then this year, um, his brother, uh, uh, Wakia, showed up as well. So going back, just telling you a little bit about Tisha. Tisha is that sweet little muffin girl on the front page in the middle picture with Asha. She works hard in school. She always has a smile on her face. So she wasn't really sure about this year's um, camp, Creative Construction. Uh, she said to me um, when she first got to the construction table and they pulled out hand saws and things, she said, oh, this seems very dangerous. And then um, as we, she was learning to use a handsaw, she said to me, this really isn't, um, this really isn't for me, as she put on her lip gloss. <laughs> so sweet. Um, Lariah, who's on that second row on the front page, she is inquisitive about everything going on around her. She wants to learn all that she can all the time. Um, as a little kid, she wasn't like that. Um, but as she's grown to be nine years old, ten years old, um, she's really a really fun girl. Um, Mika and Matea, those twins, they are pretty sure that after our summer week, uh, our summer camp week, that they're going to open up their own construction company when they get older. And you know what? They probably will because they're six years old and they could hammer a nail straight within three hard hits down into a block of wood, and they just had like cheap, cheap, uh, cheap hammers with small head nails. So I have no doubt that they might do that. And then you heard Isaiah's story, and I want to tell you a little bit about Wakia. So Wakia, again, on the back page in the burgundy, and I just want you to keep those two pictures because they're the, the one, um, those next two pictures are important. So uh, Wakia showed up to summer camp. Now, keep in mind, our summer camp is for um, K through eighth grade. Uh, Wakia, Isaiah, Josiah are all high school age kids, um, but they come to summer camp every year. So, of course, we say, yeah, we don't, we don't tell them that we thought they were, we were only doing it for that age group. Um, so, uh, Wakia, as I said, the last time I saw him was in 2000. Nine, um, and he came the first day, pretty sullen, pretty closed down. And I walked up to him. I did not recognize him, and I said to him, "You know, hi, I'm Laura. What's your name?" And he said, uh, "I don't know." And I said, "Oh, okay." And then some other kids asked him. He goes, "I'm not going to tell you." Okay, so now it's a challenge, right? There's nothing I like better than a feisty little teenager <clears throat> thinks they're going to best me. So, um, so we have a woman who is a, a taught at Red Shirt T uh, Table Elementary School for a long time. So she and I were like, okay, we're going to figure out who this is. And she came to me about three hours into summer camp, and she said, you know who I think that is? I think that's Wakia. And I was like, there's no way. And she was, like, I think it really is. So we went and we asked Isaiah, I'm like Isaiah, is that your brother Wakia? And he's like, yeah. I hate him. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. So I walked up to Wikia and I said to him towards the end of the day, I said, I know who you are now. And he said, no, you really don't. And I said, I didn't get it at the moment, but I was like, you're Wikia, 
and he just went. What he was saying was, you knew me, but you don't know me now. He had at that, this, shortly after this picture was taken, his family was separated. He and Isaiah were sent to state foster care. All the other children were adopted out. And in that state foster care, both of these young boys continued to be subjected to abuse and, um, and really harsh living uh, circumstances. Last year, his grandfather was able to get Isaiah out and have him come live with him. This year, he got Wakia out to live with him. And they live in a windowless, broken down house with the grandpa, two more brothers, and one of those brothers, three infant children. That's seven people in a house that's maybe 40 by 20 square feet, no electricity, no running water. So when he wouldn't tell us his name on that first day, we were amazed that he kept showing up. Like Isaiah, he was on the fringe. He, didn't, he participated some, but he was just gonna sit back and watch. But then as Matilda noted, this is the child who beat every Southport Congregational Church person, not just high schoolers, college kids, adults, in this game memory match, where we put together two decks of cards, laid them out, and flipped over, and you had to match them, and he crushed us each and every time. So when people say that, you know, kids on the reservation are hopeless and not really worth anything, they're, they're so wrong. These kids are so smart, and when given a chance, they prove it to us. So what we discovered about Wakia is that he loves to paint, and he's actually a very talented artist. So we were building those cub cars. You can see them. They're the two big cars in the front in the big picture there. If you're a Boy Scout, you know what we're talking about. Um, and so I said to him, hey, would you like to paint the back of the seats? And he was like, no, yes. I'm like, okay. So uh, the next day we set him up with paints and that picture of him here, he's holding the first one that he did. It's a stormy night. So there's a couple trees, there's a teepee, there's a lightning bolt, there's some storm clouds. And the next day he painted the, the next one, the, the daylight, the tree again, the house, which is really interesting. The teepee and then the house, right? So the night to the day. and. We were like, these are amazing and really great. And um, so we put them on the cup car. And on the last day, Wakia said to some of the kids, do you want to know what my uh, name translates into in English? And they were like, yeah, we do. And he said, it's something in the sky in a storm. And one of the kids said, lightning. And he said, so then... You look at that picture with that lightning bolt. <laughs> right? And you go from a kid who was never going to tell us our name to a kid who shared the most intimate knowledge of what his name meant and gave us <clears throat> a visual representation of it. There's another boy there, young man now on the reservation. His name is Josiah. We have had him in every summer camp for the 11 years that we have been going. 
When he was young, he was a sullen little kid. When he was an early teen, he was a sullen little teen. But we loved him. He's adorable and soft-hearted and kind. And when he gets comfortable, he's great. And we arrived on that first day on the reservation um, to put out flyers. That was on Thursday before the, the camp started the following Monday. So we had these flyers announcing that there was a big camp. And Roland, his father, came out of the house to greet us and to take the flyer. And he said to me, he said, Laura, wait just a minute. I have something for you that Josiah wanted to give you. Words I've never heard before. So I waited and he came out and he handed me a postcard. And on that postcard was a picture of Josiah. I'm a real mess today, Bo. <laughs> a picture of Josiah and on the back was all the information about his graduation from Pine Ridge High School. And a prouder father I've never seen. And his father said to me, this would never have happened without your kids and your summer camp. And although Josiah didn't test into Red Cloud School, so he's not eligible for uh, college uh, scholarship, the Jake Panna Scholarship, um, we are working with him and his family to enroll him in a tech school, which we will help with if he, if he needs any money for. Um, and I think Josiah will be another success story. And so these are just two of the moments that we get to experience. And so what I just want to say is that it doesn't really matter whether we feel that the reservation is a sustainable way of life. The fact of the matter is, is that these kids are on a reservation now, and they need us now, and that's what we're there for. So, we all want to thank you for your support, and please know that we take you with us, and the Res kids and their families are also so thankful for the love and hope that we bring with us from you that we carry to them every year. And they're just those words that Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. But Jesus also said, there's no greater gift than to lay down your life for your neighbor. And I am so grateful to these people here, Asha up there, and the others who couldn't be here, that they laid down their lives, they put aside their jobs, their fun at the beach, their daily life that they have here to serve God's people in need. And that is what church is all about. Amen.